0: The following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We believe that all human life is sacred and created by God in his image, Genesis 127. Human life is of inestimable worth in all its dimensions, including preborn babies, the aged, the physically or mentally challenged, and every other stage or condition from conception through natural death. We are therefore called to defend, protect, and value all human life. So this statement actually covers a lot of issues. It could cover capital punishment, just war theory, incarceration, immigration, healthcare, pollution, pretty much anything that has to do with the valuing of human life. There's more ways, human trafficking, exploitation in all its forms. What the whole life seeks to do is create a very big tent And I think for us to be consistent, we wanna cram everything in there that we can that has to do with defending and protecting and valuing human life. It's one reason, by the way, that all of us who claim to be pro-life ought to be taking the COVID-19 virus seriously. Uh, If we say only 1% of people will die, I think we're badly misunderstanding the point of what it means to be pro-life. So the valuing of the unborn is a crucial part of this. So if you go back the last couple weeks, this was clear in our messages then. Pregnancy makes image bearers. And these image bearers are meant to become temples. And I know that's churchy language, but the basic idea is we believe everyone bears the image of God. And that as we give our lives to Christ and make Jesus Lord of our life, our bodies become a temple in which God dwells. This means from start to finish of life. We honor and protect everyone, we seek to give proper value and dignity to everyone. And if you look at some examples Jesus gave as he was talking about what it looked like for his people to minister well or be faithfully present in the world, it included things like visiting those in prison, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty. Uh, We've Well, actually I mentioned on the things I've been posting on Facebook about church in the time of the virus, how the history of the church has been filled with caring for the sick. In very practical ways, Christianity has a history of a theological foundation that says people are made in the image of God. Life ought to be protected from the beginning of life to the end of life, and we ought to be ascribing value and dignity and worth throughout the course of its entirety. Now, have Christians always done that well in church history? No, they haven't. But that's a different thing than the foundation on which they are meant to be basing the way they live. So I'm going to give four different arguments today for this position. So first of all, argument from scripture. Let's start in the Old Testament. Job 31, 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you shaped me inside and out. You knitted me together in my mother's womb long before I took my first breath. I will offer you my grateful heart, for I am your unique creation, filled with wonder and awe. You have approached even the smallest details with excellence. Your works are wonderful. I carry this knowledge deep within my soul. You see all things. Nothing about me was hidden from you as I took shape in secret. Carefully crafted in the heart of the earth before I was born from its womb. You see all things. You saw me growing and changing in my mother's womb. Isaiah 44, 2. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not. Isaiah 44, 24. The Lord your Redeemer, the one who formed you before birth. Isaiah 49, the eternal one singled me out even before I was born. He called me and named me when I was still in my mother's belly. Even then, God was preparing my mouth to speak like a sharp sword. And now the eternal who watched and shaped and made me his own servant from the womb has determined to restore Jacob's family. Last one, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, before I even formed you in your mother's womb, I knew all about you. Before you drew your first breath, I had already chosen you to be my prophet, to speak my word to the nations. Now, some claim this language is poetic, and it certainly is poetic. Or that it might just be certain individuals who were granted this kind of personhood before birth, and so we shouldn't apply it to everybody. But I would suggest it's worth looking at how the original audience understood this message and how it ought to be implemented. It's probably because of the worldview behind these kinds of verses that there's just no discussion in the Old Testament of what we would nowadays call elective abortion. That would be abortion without medical justification. And the reason it's not mentioned is because a Jewish mother just wouldn't have thought of this. This wasn't something she would contemplate doing. Len Goodman notes that an Israelite parent might consider intentionally aborting a fetus seems almost beyond the moral horizon of the Torah's original audience. For in the moral environment where the law was first received, the memory of genocide and infanticide was still fresh, and every birth was precious. Uh, Once again, when we move to the New Testament, we don't see a clear injunction against elective abortion. But that's once again most likely because the books in the New Testament were written by Jewish people coming out of a culture and an environment where abortion simply was not done. But you do, once again, see some verses that support the humanity or the personhood of people before they are born. Three examples. We read this of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Luke 141, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's babe leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would just note the word here for babe is used equally of an unborn child and an infant, and you can see other references in scripture for this, once again, found in my notes. And then Paul said this of God, he who had set me apart even before I was born and called me through his grace. That's Galatians 15. So we see John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit, we see him responding to Mary's voice in his womb, we see Paul called by God's grace and set apart while he was still in the womb. So once again, while the New Testament does not have a specific injunction against abortion, it carries on what was already assumed and simply accepts it as fact that human beings before they are born, God is present and at work and forming and even in some cases his spirit is filling them. So that's argument one, scripture's presentation. The second one is the argument from church history. So in Judaism, there was a consensus on a number of important things. And really, this is just a summary of the verses I just read. People were made in God's image. Children were a blessing, which was why abortion was unthinkable. And that the unborn were humans deserving of protection. It's worth noting because you can read a variety of different opinions about this. They didn't have access to the kind of scientific knowledge that we have now about how the unborn develop. So there was not always a consensus within Judaism about when that moral status kicked in. So you can find in Jewish literature that some argued that full humanity began at conception. Some argued it happened when the baby was fully formed. Some argued it happened at the moment of quickening. And some argued that it took place when the baby was viable. What I want us to note is that in all those cases, moral status kicked in when life was present as best they understood it. And that was before birth. In the next two arguments, we'll get to how science and philosophy helps us better understand when that life begins. But in spite of this uncertainty or some disagreement within Judaism, there was clear teachings about how they viewed this issue. So Josephus, who was a first century historian, stated, The law orders all the offspring be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus. And in fact, if they did so, the Jewish law, according to Josephus, said they were considered to have committed infanticide as if the child was born. The early church built on this foundation and they unhesitatingly condemned abortion. I have far more examples in my notes than I'm going to read, but I'll give you some key ones. The Epistle of Barnabas, written approximately 125. Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shalt thou destroy it after it's born. The Didache, approximately 140, says, Do not murder a child by abortion, nor commit infanticide. Tertullian approximately 2.13, said, It makes no difference whether one take away the life once born or destroy it as it comes to birth. He is a man who is to be a man. The fruit is always present in the seed. Gregory of Nyssa, approximately 3.70, said, There is no disagreement or doubt that those which are being nourished in the womb have growth and spatial movement, so the remaining alternative is to suppose that soul and body have one and the same beginning. So I give you those examples just to note that throughout church history, especially early church history, there is a consistent message that abortion is the taking or the ending of human life. And you begin to see clear statements of this connection between body and soul and that connection between body and soul began before birth, not after birth. Which brings me to my third point, which is the argument from biology. So I've mentioned before but I think the Bible properly understood and science properly understood will tell the same story. So in this case, what we've seen from scripture and the history of church tradition, I think aligns very closely with what science is helping us see through the study of embryology. To give you a number of quotes, and once again, I have more quotes in my notes than I'm going to read. But just to give you an idea of what textbooks are saying, for one, but then also important people in this discussion. So this is from the textbook, Human Embryology. It is the penetration of the ovum by the spermatozoan and resultant mingling of the nuclear material that each brings to the union that constitutes the culmination of the process of fertilization and marks the initiation of the life of a new individual. From a textbook called Pathology of the Fetus and the Infant. Every time a sperm cell and ovum unite, a new being is created which is alive. And will continue to live unless its death is brought about by some specific condition. From a book called The Developing Human, Clinically Oriented Embryology. A zygote is the beginning of a new human being. That's an embryo. Peter Singer Um, who is not known for his defense of the pro-life movement. In his book, Practical Ethics, notes this, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as the equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. Alan Guttmacher, who you may recognize that name, he has an institute named after him. He was a former Planned Parenthood president. He was actually, at one point, perplexed that anyone would question these basic scientific facts. He noted, this all seems so simple and evident, it's difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge. A Planned Parenthood brochure from 1963 noted, Abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and to your health. One more quote, actually two. Faye Waddleton, who was a longtime president of Planned Parenthood, told Miss Magazine, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our own ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. And then finally, Bernard Nathanson, who was co-founder of NAROL, in an article for the New England Journal of Medicine said this, There is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists within the womb from the very onset of pregnancy. And that brings me to the fourth argument, which is the argument from philosophy. Don't let the philosophy term head you off. That's just a heady way of of saying we're looking for wisdom and knowledge here. So philosophy will support the biblical narrative, the historical Christian position, and the biological narrative that we've just covered. Scott Klusendorf at the Light Training Institute, I'm sorry, Life Training Institute, and Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason have both highlighted four ways in which an unborn child differs from a child who was born. And those ways are size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And their argument is that none of these differences would justify the elective killing of the unborn. So let me briefly go through each of those. The question of size. So, the unborn is clearly smaller than a born human. This doesn't mean they're not persons. Let's make it practical. A three-year-old is smaller than a teenager. We don't say we can kill them because they're smaller. Because their value is not based on their size, neither is their humanity. In the same way, though the unborn is smaller than the born child, that is not a justifiable reason for killing the unborn. The second would be level of development. That differs between the unborn and the born. The unborn is clearly less developed than a born child, but this is irrelevant to personhood. A four-year-old girl can't bear children because her reproductive system is less developed than a 16-year-old girl. She is still equally valuable as a child-bearing teen as she was when she was a non-child-bearing youngster and the same value she'll have when she's a 70-year-old grandmother. We can't disqualify the unborn from personhood simply because they are less developed than older human beings, and this includes going back to the most fundamental starting point of our development. So I would think of it this way. Ask yourself the question, were you ever not you? Of course not. If you were to walk back through your development, you'd never come to a time when you were not you. You would, however, come back as you to the moment of conception. So we have size, level of development. Those two things don't make a difference. Let's go with environment. Their argument is that your location has no bearing on the value of who you are. So being inside or outside a house changes nothing about your value. That's an obvious one. Uh, For an astronaut, their value doesn't change when they leave the atmosphere and head into outer space. In the same way, the journey from inside the womb to outside the womb, it changes nothing about humanity or personhood. If you're a person when you're born, you were a person before you were born, too. Even Peter Singer agrees with this. So going back, we quoted Peter Singer a little bit ago. Once again, he does not have a pro-life position, but he offers an argument that actually makes sense. He notes this. He says infanticide should be legal for at least a month after birth. And I, I think his time frame has changed over time. And I would note that I think that's a horrible but consistent idea for him at least. He wrote in his book, Practical Ethics, the liberal search for a morally crucial dividing line between the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to yield any event or stage of development that can bear the weight of separating those with the right to life from those who lack such a right. Now, I actually agree with that statement. But to Singer, it means... If we can kill the unborn, we can kill the born, at least for a time. But I think he badly misses the point. If we can't kill the born, we can't kill the unborn either. The fourth one is degree of dependency. Some people will cite viability as a marker for when the unborn should be considered human. But let's be honest, newborns and toddlers are hardly viable in the truest sense of the word. They must be cared for and fed by someone else just like they were before they were born. So is Peter Singer right then? Should parents be allowed to kill children until they're independent in terms of their basic need for sustenance? And I would say, no. Your humanity is not connected to your dependency. If it were, people in the hospital would be less human. People at the end of life would be less human. People who are severely handicapped physically or mentally would be less human. But we don't make that argument. Yes, the unborn depends on the mother, but this says nothing about the unborn's humanity and value. So this SLED acronym speaks to the broader pro-life position, and that is that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, place of residence, or degree of dependence, should be excluded from the, human, the community of human persons and the rights and protections that followed. So that sums up the four ways that Christians have traditionally argued to preserve the life of the unborn. And as I pointed out at the beginning, I think the phrase whole life captures the ways in which the principles found in this argument from the unborn ought to be applied as well to the born. The sled argument, I'm sorry, the sled acronym, is a great example of this. This isn't something uniquely situated to the unborn, though I think it starts there foundationally. It's something we ought to be considering with everyone with whom we come into contact. I want to wrap up with the responses of Christians. I think there's three ways in which Christians can be faithfully present in our culture on this issue. Number one, we can use our voice and our vote in the public square. So we have the privilege of being able to vote. The early church didn't. In fact, through a lot of church history, Christians simply did not have any kind of meaningful voice in the public square, at least in certain cultures. We do, so we should educate ourselves. We should be truthful, we should be bold, and we should be tactful in defense of the unborn. We have plenty of platforms where we can speak on this. Social media has clearly given us this possibility, but there's letters to the editor. There's hashtagging articles. Uh, There's lots of ways in which we we can use our voice and our vote to spread the word on this issue and to have an impact. Secondly, when abortion numbers trend down, most pro-life sites will credit two main things, ultrasound images and relationships. So the first thing I would note is that I think ultrasound images are powerful. When you watch someone's baby develop online as they're going to the doctor and they're getting ultrasounds and they're posting those ultrasounds, that's a wonderful window into the womb and it gives kind of a flesh and blood reality to the conversation that we're having. This is a human life that is developing. So I think images are are good. Um, There's a separate discussion to have about when it's appropriate to use images of abortion. But I would say one thing is clear, it's always a good idea to use images of the developing babies and to highlight the excitement of pregnancy. But relationships are also crucial. If the only way people experience us is that we are from a distance uh, offering criticisms, it's going to backfire. There has to be a relational component. That is, if I care about this issue, I ought to care about the baby and the mother. And I ought to care not just before they are born, but after they are born. And I ought to be willing to put my money where my mouth is, to put my time, to put my energy, to put my resources. And I'm going to get ahead of myself in my notes here. But I think it's important relationally that we position ourselves to help in practical ways. Our goal is to walk alongside people who feel they are in a situation where abortion is the answer and to try to give support as we can. Uh, for I know it's easy to see stories highlighted on the news where um, in some cases people are kind of brash and defiant and celebratory. I'm convinced that is not the norm Um, As I have talked with people individually, as I've talked with other people who work in the pro-life community, the vast majority of our stories are stories of people who feel they are in a desperate spot and they don't know how this is going to work. One thing we can do as Christians and as pro-life advocates is position ourselves to help. If people feel abandoned and alone, an unexpected or an unwanted pregnancy can feel overwhelming. But if They can be part of a community of people who are committed to care, not just until the baby is born, but committed to walk with them through life. That is an entirely different kind of scenario, which brings me to my third point. Be involved in caring for physical and emotional needs. So you can get involved with organizations like Pregnancy Care Center, When we partner with VidaNet in Costa Rica, they have El Nido, which is for single moms. You can find other organizations that provide tangible acceptance and care for physical and emotional needs. Lots of opportunities around us. I'll just note briefly what the early church did, and I'm quoting now from T.L. Frazier. The early church provided places of refuge for pregnant women in desperate situations. They were usually convents at that time places where women would find acceptance and medical care. Not only did the church try to provide for the physical needs of mothers, it also provided for their psychological and spiritual needs, needs that abortion completely overlooks. The early church also ran orphanages for the children born of unwanted pregnancies. And it is perhaps no coincidence that many of the church's greatest saints started life as such orphans. As pagan antiquity became a thing of the past with the triumph of Christianity, so in large part did a port of fashion poisons and infanticide. Uh, adoption is a fantastic way to contribute practically you know, in this in the way the church did historically. We don't necessarily have the convents anymore. We have a different system in this country, and it can look different around the world depending on how the government puts things in place or private organizations put things in place for children. But one thing we can do here for sure is adoption. And then actually, it turns out I have four points instead of three. And this is my final point. Help to create a church community that embodies the grace, forgiveness, and hope that only Christ can offer. There's a danger that we can be known for being against abortion. And thus, it feels like as a church, it's us versus them in some sense, that people are our enemy. But the reality is that the church is called for us to be for Christ. That's the primary thing. We're not against something first. We're for something. We are for salvation. We're for forgiveness. We're for healing. And we're for hope, the kind of things that are only found through Christ and then hopefully embodied by the church, which is meant to be Christ's kind of physical presence on the earth. There's also a danger we'll stand on a spiritual pedestal on this issue Uh, As if because we see one thing that is out of God's will and design, we have the right to somehow stand up high and look down our noses at people. I want to go to Luke 18. Jesus contrasts two people offering prayers. The Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. That's a bold statement. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector, a Jewish trader, and one of the most reviled men in the community is praying a prayer that honors God. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Church, we have to be careful that we don't approach this issue from a spiritual pedestal. Can I give you just one practical reason? If you look up stats for abortion in the United States, 70% of people who get an abortion identify themselves as Christian. Turning this issue around begins in the church. And even if you argue, and this may well be true, that lots of people identify themselves as Christian who aren't functionally Christian, they're maybe just raised to think because I went to church I am or something like that, it's still a daunting issue. We don't have a pedestal to stand on. We, we go to the foot of the cross like everyone else and I've said this before the ground is level at the foot of the cross when we kneel there there is nobody looking down on others and there's nobody having to look up at others other than Christ there's no place for superiority for pride or for any kind of shaming judgment we're all in need of confessing our sins and receiving Christ's forgiveness and constantly being renewed in the newness of life I love how our church is able to be involved in different things in this area. We support Pregnancy Care Center. We support Single Mom Ministries, which works with moms, many of whom are coming out um, of pregnancy situations that could have been daunting and overwhelming, but now they have a community of people around them. There are lots of ways to be involved. I believe God wants us to be known for what we are for and for offering the love of Christ very practically So that means helping where we can. It's also the love of Christ to point people toward Christ. Those two things aren't in opposition with each other, they can happen at the same time. And my longing is that the church is a place, a community, where people can find healing, hope, forgiveness for things in their past that they ought not have done. But it can also find a place where we are known for surrounding and walking with and supporting people who are in any kind of time in crisis, and that could include a crisis pregnancy. I'm I'm thinking again just of what's happening right now with COVID-19, that here we are again. We want to walk with people in crisis. Back to the announcement at the beginning about what we're trying to offer here at the church for people in need. I believe that is the heart of Christ that we want to have in us for the people around us who are in need of any kind. What does it look like? for us to be a faithful, loving presence that shows the heart, the words, the presence, the attitude of Christ in every possible way. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.